I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Exciting episode. This is episode 60. And it's being released on? 420, baby. <laughs> oh my goodness, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was all mimed, yeah. all fake. <laughs> But pretty good, right? <laughs> wow. You would be great on whose line is it anyway? Oh, babe, do you think so? Mm. I'll, I'll send a, I'll send a self-tape. Send a self-tape. <laughs> um, you had this great plan to watch all stoner movies. It just didn't. It did not happen. <laughs> it didn't come together. So, you know, there was a plan. Yeah. But, but, you know, we did we did squeeze one in there. So I think that we did our due diligence. And you know what? Those of you who are listening who love this day... Any movie can be a stoner movie if you want it to be. Every, every movie can be a stoner movie. Yeah. If you want it to be. Yeah. If you want it to be. Okay. We did. <laughs> He's been singing a lot today, just so you're all aware. <laughs> just one of those days. Um, okay. Five smackaroonies this week. Uh, let's get into it. Kicked it off with a mystery movie pick from moi. I wanted to revisit the 2003 staple of my youth the animated comedy family adventure film <laughs> oh, heavens uh finding nemo it was directed by andrew stanton and lee unkridge and written by andrew stanton bob peterson and david reynolds a lot of dudes a lot of peepees on this one Ew. um it stars albert brooks as marlin these are all voice voice characters as well if you didn't know um, Ellen DeGeneres as Dory, Alexander Gould as Nemo, the the greatest Willem Dafoe as Gil, Brad Garrett as Bloat, Allison Janney as Peach, Stephen Root as Bubbles, and Jeffrey Rush as Nigel, amongst many others, of course. The synopsis is, after his son is captured in the Great Barrier Reef and taken to Sydney, a timid clownfish sets out on a journey to bring him home. Rife with dad stuff, right there in the synopsis. Okay. We grew up with this sucker. What do you think of Finding Nemo? Well, 
it's interesting that you say we grew up with it because it came out when we were 13. Yeah, I just associate it with it with my youth. I do too, but it it's interesting because it came out more when we were in like getting to the latter stages of junior high. But it, it it's funny because I feel like the way that when Shrek came out when we were in like grade five, grade six, and I, I mean, I watched it all the time at home and then at school, whenever we had downtime, we were always watching Shrek. Like they were teachers were always. I don't know what your on. darn Catholic schools were doing, but I was not watching movies as much as you were. But we had library class, and we would just. And go, you didn't read. We'd go to the library. We'd look at the books for I don't know ten fifteen. Take out some books. She would give us what she called uh, sours, which was just like mini fuzzy peaches that were in a in like a canister, like a Ferrero Rocher case, and we got to take one. And then we would go to where these like couches and a chair were around this old ass TV and watch movies for the rest of the block. That is I feel atrocious. Like, I feel, was this elementary? Yes, it was. Okay, well, I we feel, had library time and we went into the reading pit and people read to us. I feel like library block is just an opportunity for teachers to it's just a prep for teachers. Well, it is. But the li- like, was that the librarian who gave you sours? <laughs> yeah. Because our librarian took us to the reading pit and read out loud to us. Um, in grade six? No, then we went to the reading pit and we had to read on our own. Like you just got to sit in the reading pit and the, and it was so cool. It was like well, this um, it sound, sunken. It sounds sick. It was. It was awesome. Um, reading pit. Yeah. And then you just like you could like lay down like it was a huge thing. Like like it was a huge reading pit. So you could. Um, yeah, I guess that explains why I read a lot. And you don't. Well, it's funny because now I'm just, I didn't think that we were going to go deep on a library block, but thinking about it is that we would, you know, do the whole thing I was talking about, but kids could go and read in other places in the library if they wanted to, instead of watching whatever is on the TV. We also watched like uh, in younger grades, we watched like Robert Munch. Yeah, but it is stuff. it is library block. You shouldn't be watching anything. But so, think, it's not film block. But thinking back to it now, it's like you can go read at the other tables if you want to. If you don't want to watch the movie, but they would turn off the lights <laughs> for the movie. And then, and you've got the volume of the movie, so anybody with noise sensitivities. Yeah, and it's dark. So, well, I mean, I wouldn't care. I'd bring a book light. Sick. But um, I probably wouldn't have because I would have felt like, well, everybody's going to think I'm a nerd if I leave to go do this, even though I wouldn't want to watch Shrek for the twentieth time. Wow, so much about you makes sense now. (laughs) It's all about library block and the sours. Your school also didn't teach you French when they were legally obligated to teach you French. Yeah. And now you don't know French. Yeah, I mean, I took it proper grade four grade and grade five. No, grade five, it started getting loose. Grade six, our teacher would just be like, hey, do you want to just extend math block? And do math for another block instead of French. <laughs> like provincially required to and we'd just be like, have French in grade six. We'd be like, yeah, sure. Or she'd be like, do you want to just do homework block? And we're like, yeah. So really didn't take any French in grade six. And your mom put you in this school not because you were Catholic, but because it was a better school. No, she put me in it because it was close to the house. Yeah, but so was um that public school. I guess we shouldn't name all the schools, but it's like a K to nine. Yeah. That was, I guess that was too far away. (laughs) Anyway, Finding Nemo. Do you remember the first time you watched it? Because I do. 
I don't remember the first time I watched it. So you tell me your first time. To my recollection, it was a really hot weekend day. Really, really hot. And I was walking around with a friend. And neither of our houses had air conditioning. And we were just like dying. And the Leduc Theater was playing it. And I think it had already, it might have been in the summer and they were like replaying it for the summer. Um, or it came out in the summer, I'm not sure. Uh, and then we were just like, man, the theater's air conditioned. Let's go in there. I guess let's watch Finding Nemo. And I was like, that's like a movie for little kids. <laughs> um, but then we really liked it. So I only saw it because I wanted to get out of the heat um, and I ended up really liking it. So, yeah, I feel like that's where it came out in, on May 30th, 2003. Oh, it could have been still been there in June. Yeah. In the theater. I feel like there's a lot of. I don't know. There's just like unexpected fun days that you can have, especially when you were when you're younger, when you're just trying to. Even like when we first moved out and we were in places without air conditioning, it's just in that hunt to seek out places to go to try to beat the heat. It just led to a lot of really great days. Like I've had a lot of really great. You and I went out for dinners and just like sat in freezing Boston pizzas trying to, you know, just cool down on those like plus 30 days. Um, But I like that. I like that you were pee pee poo poo about it. And then you're like, oh, damn. Yeah, it's a trend. That we'll continue into the next film. Um, has Finding Nemo been like, if people say like, name your favorite Pixar movie, have you ever said Finding Nemo? I think that Finding Nemo is in top five for me. I I I haven't watched it in a while, but I say that Monsters, Inc. is my favorite Pixar movie. And I think that's just because the, I think the creativity of that world and everything about it. And we'll get into it. We'll eventually rewatch Monsters Inc. covered on the show, so I won't go deep on it now. But I think that it's top five for me. What about you? I mean, I think it's one that I kind of forget about because it came out when I was old enough that I was like, cartoons, um, but but not old enough that I was like, yeah, all types of film are great. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that like weird in-between of like, I'm trying to be older and mm-hmm. so I'm not going to watch kids' movies. Um, but watching it this time, I was like, oh, I've seen this so many times. I actually know it like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there was a lot of really annoying people who were like obsessed with Dory. Yeah. And a lot of just like people running around going like, just keep swimming. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's when it's, it's kind of stuff like that. And it, it gets worse in other Pixar movies. But there's always this very blatant little kid device that's in a Pixar movie because Pixar typically will try to go deeper with its themes or its emotions or what it's trying to say for the adult audiences. If kids are able to get it, that's great. But there's always like in up the the talking dog is that killer for you. Like the little kid aspects can totally kill a movie. It's another theme that's going to run through. Yes. This week. Um, But I do really like it. I do really like it. And I think you and I actually haven't really talked about it too much, but I have read your Letterboxd review and I think you have read mine. It seems like we both were more emotionally, were emotionally impacted watching it this time in a way we hadn't been before. Yeah. In Even a, though I've probably seen this dozens of times. Yeah. Like you said, um, I feel like I know this movie like the back of my hand. And just as we were watching it, I'm just like, oh yeah, this and this and this. But there's something about watching this for the first time 
in our 30s and after having not watched it for so long that I see more of myself in Marlon. Mm. And as the the opening scene of this film hit particularly hard. I think you even said like this is this is hitting harder than the opening of Up. But I feel like it's so impactful and the and emotional and that kind of set the stage for the rest of the movie and just some of the, some of the dialogue between Marlon and Dory and some of the realizations that Marlon has throughout the film and even some of the what we could call quote unquote adult fish as opposed to Nemo who is a kid fish mm-hmm. the adult fish in uh, the dentist office mm-hmm. like I saw more. Of especially in like Gil, like Willem Dafoe's character, I I saw I was able to um, sympathize with him more. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It just it it reached it reached a new level for me, and I really it allowed me to enjoy the film in a new way mm-hmm. and more than I feel like more than I ever did in the past because I feel like I kind of had an attitude like you like. This was something I watched in my youth and everybody loved it and everybody did the just keep swimming and it was and we watched it with our nieces or nibblings when they were younger, maybe, um, and just watched it very passively. But I felt like I actively watched it this time and it engaged me on a new level. What about you? Yeah, it was a similar kind of thing in that. I mean, I know this movie. I know the opening scene. I probably could like recite much of the movie to a person prior to rewatching it. But I don't think I'd ever quite grasped because I don't think I've seen this in a very long time, at least not in full and and not distractedly. I'm sure we've watched portions of it with nibblings at some point. Yeah. Um, that this entire movie is about Marlon's PTSD oh. and like his own, I think, lack of awareness of why he is the way he is. Um, and how this trauma that he's experienced, which you see in the opening scene, has impacted how he lives his life and his relationship with his son and therefore is impacting how his son lives his life. So now we're getting into intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, man, is the ocean a metaphor for therapy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the West Australian current is therapy. <laughs> Is just keep swimming like the ultimate, like you just gotta you gotta work on yourself. You gotta keep doing the work. Yeah. Um I don't and, and yeah, just watching it through that, some of those moments where Marlon has, I think, like what would be equivalent to a panic attack, or like some of the really like intense moments in it. <laughs> I felt so sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but in like a relatable way, I cried a lot in it. Did you cry? Oh, yeah. I don't think I've ever cried in Finding Nemo before. I know people who have cried in the opening scene because they're just like, oh, so sad. Sorry, people like that. But I'm like, like there's something thematically and about the character of Marlon and what he is going through that I think I didn't quite grasp when I was younger. I got it on a literal level, but I don't think I got it on an emotional level or on a like what this means in the journey of a person's life. Um, and yeah, I cried. Yeah. Well, I think it's really intense. I'm going to try really hard not to get into spoilers, but I I feel like everything that happens in that opening scene is then channeled all, all of what Marlon goes through and what he takes away from that is then channeled directly into Nemo. And that's a lot to put onto Nemo. Mm -hmm. 
and like if you if you imagine it happening to people it would be a really intense thing to experience and for a parent to put on a child emotionally Mm -hmm. and my brain just now naturally makes those connections and goes down (laughs) goes down that thought path and i think that that's why it just hits so much harder because i could just i could focus on those things and those were the things that were bubbling up and not like oh you just said (laughs) um you know what my favorite part of the movie is, though? Hmm. The turtles. Yeah, you love the turtles. Yeah, like, honestly, that part of Finding Nemo is the better stoner movie than the stoner movie <laughs> we watched, which I know many people would disagree with, but um, Crush is so funny. <laughs> yes. Dude, do you know who did the voice? No. The director. Oh, that's great. And he recorded it lying on the couch at his office. <laughs> I think that's the way to record it. Yeah, it's so so good. All of the voice acting is so good. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's it's perfect. All of it. Originally, I guess they were going to do William H. Macy for Marlin, and I don't... I'm sure he would have been good, but I can't imagine any other voice than, than what we have. Yeah. It's funny because I feel this was the first thing I ever saw with Albert Brooks, so anytime I see Albert Brooks in anything, I'm just like... Oh, that's Marlon. Um, one cool thing about this movie that I definitely didn't appreciate as a kid um, is the degree to which children, especially with limb differences, can feel represented by Nemo. Yeah. Um, so there's this really cool project called the Lucky Finn Project. Hmm. Have you heard of it? No. Um, so it's a... A mom started it. I'll read a little bit from the website. So this is quoted from their About Me page. So it says, In 2007, I gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Ryan. As much as, as much as each baby is unique, Ryan entered the world with an unexpected hand difference. The growth of her right hand had been stunted, her palms small and no fingers except a tiny thumb. We received painfully little information from healthcare professionals, and my husband and I were left to search for answers on our own. Since then, we now know that Ryan's hand difference is known medically as symbrachydactyly. If you've seen the movie Finding Nemo, then you know all about Nemo's lucky fin and how being made a little differently didn't stop him from accomplishing everything he set out to do. In July of 2010, I began making limb difference awareness bracelets in celebration of my daughter as well as other individuals in the world with a limb difference. In the last eight years, I've spent over 20,000. I've made over 20,000 awareness bracelets, which have been sent to supports supporters worldwide. They're a nonprofit organization that exists to raise awareness and celebrate children and individuals born with some brachydactyly or other limb differences. What they do is create support networks for parents around the U.S. and around the world, link parents to medical information and resources, provide education on differences, limb differences, and host events and financially support financial support efforts for children to attend camps, obtain prosthetics, and to fund other organizations within the limb difference community. I fucking love that so much. And so I heard about this through um, Stump Kitchen. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> I think... Uh, I believe her name is Alexis, who who created Stump Kitchen, which is this local Edmonton um, content creator. It's amazing. We'll link to it. Um, where there, it's it's a cooking show mm-hmm. um, called Stump Kitchen because Alexis has a limb difference, and I believe Alexis participates in Lucky Finn Project as much as possible. So I think it's really easy to to not think about in two thousand three what it would mean to a really little kid to be like, Hey, Nemo's like me. Yeah. And like, not nobody makes fun of him. Like his dad, like it's lucky Finn and they celebrate it. Right. 
I think that's really cool. Yeah. Like, yeah, I love that. Like the, the bit where he drops him off at school and he's just like, how's your lucky fin? Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I like that a lot. Did I wonder if they've ever like partnered with Pixar because I feel like that's something Pixar could help out with even like doing donations or something. I don't know. Love it though. Yeah, pretty cool. I was thinking about this. There was one scene in this where um, Dory's like, I feel, I feel like I've lost somebody or something and it reminded me of uh, an, a, a show recently that was like, I wake up and I've lost something. What show? The Last of Us. Oh. <laughs> And then it got me thinking, is Finding Nemo just The Last of Us? I mean, I think almost everything is just The Last (laughs) of Us, meaning like The Last of Us is derivative. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, just like last week, we talked about how like little orphan girly stories will get me every time. A dad finding a daughter or like losing a child (laughs) every time. Yeah. You know, keep making them. Yeah. (laughs) you just keep meeting like these like ragtag groups of people or people or individuals along the way yeah it's great yeah uh i love it yeah i think the the last thought i kind of had about this is that it is still gorgeous to look at but i feel like you know we're definitely in in terms of video games we're in the age of remakes uh and just tapping into nostalgia and taking I mean, I just finished playing the remake of Resident Evil 4. I love those stupid video games. But remaking something that was so beloved and having it look even better and just function so well in today's technological time is so awesome. I feel like it'd be great if they remastered or remade Finding Nemo. Not remade. Yeah, not remade, but like remastered it because I feel like for as good as it looks, like even Finding Dory, I remember, stepped it up a notch. But I just feel I didn't like Finding Dory as much as Finding Nemo. So if the visuals were just able to get a little bit more of a bump and just polish, I feel like that'd be so great. Something I read, and I don't know if this is true, is that they were capable of having stronger graphics, but it looked too real. Like the ocean looked too real. And that was like not fitting within the vibe of the movie. And they also wanted it to feel computer, like visual effect based and animation based and not like they had taken live footage of an ocean and then like bed knobs and broomsticks who framed Roger Rabbit style and then put the Mm. cartoons into it. I don't know how true that is, but they say the ocean looked too real. I mean, like I said, this movie still looks great. Yeah. Uh, It's not like I was like, this this doesn't look. It's not like when you watch Toy Story 1 and you're like, oh, (laughs) And then you watch Toy Story mm. 4 and you're like, damn, this is just reality. Or when now. you friggin' play Mario Kart 64. <laughs> yes. You're like, what are these blobs? <laughs> yeah. I can't even tell what's in the distance. <laughs> yeah. How did I do this? <laughs> yeah. How did my eyes survive? We sat a lot closer to the TVs in those days, I feel like. Yeah, it just burned out the retinas. <laughs> yeah. Big time. That's why we're all going to lose our vision and hearing way too early. Yes. Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, this was, but this was great. I'm really happy that we revisited it and that it still holds up and and resonates on a new level than it did prior. How did it make you feel? It just made me feel so much empathy for the darn fish. <laughs> yeah, like all of the fish. Yeah, 
it is also kind of this big PSA of like, oh, we need humans just kind of suck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'll always get me with a um, uh, ecological or animal justice based message. Mm-hmm. And at one point, you were like, "Is this all just a metaphor for bycatch?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, definitely. But I do think there's a degree to which it's like, what what business do we have as humans interfering with the ecological systems of marine life? Yeah. You know? How'd it make you feel? Newly affected watching it as an adult. Also agree. Deep, deep, deep. Wow. It, you are musical today. <laughs> um, so if you don't know what that is. Who are you? We went and saw the Super Mario, Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, also an animation adventure family comedy. It came out this year, 2023, baby. Um, and much like Finding Nemo, is written and directed by a bunch of white guys. Uh. Uh, so it was directed by Aaron Horvath, <laughs> Michael Jelenic, Pierre Leduc. Hey, Leduc. <laughs> and written by Matthew Fogel. It stars Chris Pratt as Mario, Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach, Charlie Day as Luigi, Jack Black as Bowser, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong, and there's a bunch of other little sweet surprises amongst the cast as well. The synopsis, this is the most boring synopsis I've ever read in my life, Um, but it is the story of the Super Mario Brothers on their journey through the Mushroom Kingdom. Yep. (laughs) What did you think of the Super Mario Brothers movie? I won't bury the lead. Uh, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was awesome. We were divided on going to see this when mm-hmm. it was first announced because mm-hmm. I was, I was all in on going to see it. And you're like, you can go see that by yourself. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, I'm just like, I have no interest, and it's very rare. I I wouldn't go see Avatar with you back in like 2009. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't see the remake of The Evil Dead with you, but that was on moral principle. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I wouldn't go see Batman be Superman. Yeah. I think that's it. In like our 13 year history of watching a ton of movies together, there's been three movies that I'm like, go watch those on your own. And I do. I've seen movies without you too. I saw Mamma Mia without you. Fine. Yeah. I'm just saying. Whatever. Sometimes you don't want to see things too. Yeah. Yeah. But I like seeing things with you. So 20th century women without you. Yeah. But you are also, you more than me. No, that's not even true. I feel like there's a lot of times that we do go see things without each other and they're like, it was good. I want to show you. This. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back and watch it together. Um, and leading up to this, uh, us going to see it, the reviews were starting to come in and they were like middling. Like, yeah, they they weren't. Which didn't get me any. I think I was. OK, so I'll say one of the reasons I was really resistant to going is I was worried that it was just going to be really gimmicky. And I'm not saying it's not. And it's made um, by the people that did Minions, so it's also like red flag a little bit because it's just Minions aren't our jam. Yeah. They're lots of people's jam. And that's cool. But they're not our jam. Not our jam. Um, I also just, I really don't like Chris Pratt. Like, he just rubs me the wrong way. You know the way that like Pedro Pascal rubs everybody the right way? <laughs> yeah, the exact opposite is Chris, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, yeah. Where it's like you look at Pedro and you're like, he seems like the nicest guy he seems like he'd give the sweetest, warmest hug. Chris Pratt just gives real douche energy. Yeah. And so I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to see it. 
And I'm sick of him being in everything. everything. Yeah. So I think I was just reluctant. And I was like, I don't know. I just and and Jack Black is Bowser. Don't get me wrong. I love me some Jack Black. But Mr. Schneeble. I love Mr. Schneeble, but he does have a particular brand of humor and he's very over the top. And that's not usually my thing is like really over the top humor. Like I think he's a little toned down in School of Rock, but I'm not a Tenacious D fan. Mm-hmm. I'm not a Nacho Libre fan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I was just a little resistant. And then, you know, as people were kind of giving it pretty consistent three out of five, I was like, eh. But then there was a couple people that like, we know that we're giving it 4.5 out of five and saying like so, so good. Mm-hmm. So how did you convince me to go? I think that the thing that put this over the line of not wanting to go to wanting to go is that our nephew is really into Mario. He loves the Mario universe. Um, and it was his birthday. Um, it's coming up, but it's around the time of, the release of Mario. So I'm like, you know what? I think it would be really cool for us to take our nephew and really special to take our nephew to see the Super Mario Brothers movie. He's really excited about it. He was actually, he's having a bigger birthday party closer to his actual birthday. No, opposite. We took him to the movie right by his birthday. He's having his birthday later because it's too close to Easter. Right, right, right. But he's going to see it eventually. We're like, do you want to see it this time first? Do you want to see it early with us? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and he very quickly, yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, we took him and we were very excited. He, we showed up to pick him up. He got a, it was Easter Monday morning and he got a Mario hat with like all the Mario Nintendo world characters on it. And he wore it to the movie theater. He was so stoked on it. Uh, and that was just such a good excuse to, to go see the movie. Now, a mistake that we made is we, like I said, we went on Easter Monday, not really thinking about the fact that everybody has the day off and that we maybe should have bought tickets ahead of time. Which we, we always buy tickets ahead of time. I think we just weren't certain what time we would want to wake up in the morning. Yeah. So we're like, oh, I will play it by ear. Yeah. Cause there's, and there's so many factors too of like, it's playing so many times. What time do we want to go? We for sure want to see it in 2D because 3D is pee pee poo poo. And we just didn't. <laughs> yeah, we just we just didn't pick a time. So we got to the theater and we're like, oh yeah. Um, it's packed here. And there's only seating in the first two rows. So do we take the hit and just get one of those seats? Or but at this point we have child in tow with <laughs> yeah. snacks. Yeah. It's like who's so excited to see the movie. Yeah. Do you want to like not go today slash wait two hours before the next show where we can have better seats? Oh, but the guy said every movie for the whole day was like that. That's right. So we're like, "Mm, maybe it's not too bad. It was nuts. Like to sit in the second row of one of the deluxe theaters. So the screen is huge. Huge. Thankfully, the seats recline a good amount. So you're not having to crane your neck. You're just kind of lying back. Kind of like a dentist office situation. Honestly, though, our nephew didn't even bat an eye. No, he like was, he at no point cared that we were in the second row. No, not my preferred way of watching a movie moving <laughs> no. forward. Agreed. Um, We've learned our lesson. Yeah, but it was really intense. The 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 for, okay, so I loved it. The first thing I kind of want to get into that 
I really reflected on when we walked out of the movie and as the movie was playing was that the world of Mario has been really important to my life. And I feel like it's been really important to both of our lives. Yeah, independently and together. And that's not something I ever really thought about or considered until watching this movie. I agree. I think I, when I was being very reluctant to go see this, I think I hadn't really ever given credit to how much Mario has always meant to me like it's if somebody Mm -hmm. asks you like you know what are the things you really like like, we don't have mario stuff all around our house no like i have quite a lot of powerpuff girl stuff (laughs) um you have quite a lot of batman stuff yeah um some nickelodeon stuff but if you asked me i i wouldn't put mario in that yeah like if we an example would be like if we went to a place and we're looking at pop figures I feel like we'd gravitate towards, yeah, like the Batmans, the Rugrats, the Nightmare Before Christmas. Like those are the kinds of things that we pull from our childhood that we're like, yes. But if we saw Mario stuff, we we wouldn't necessarily be like, yeah, let's we should definitely get Mario pop figures. Yeah. But it this movie so effectively used callbacks and references, big and small, to the history of Mario and the things of like where Mario got his start to now um i mean we play mario kart 8 deluxe every day yeah at least four races every day yeah so mario is years mario is a part of our day every day yeah that's definitely our most played game of our lives i would say i've spent more time playing mario kart 8 than i've spent playing anything else ever in my life Well, I think that's something really special is that it came out on the Wii U and we got it pretty close to after we moved out together. Yeah. Um, So we played it right from the time we started our lives together. And then we got a switch and it got ported over and we rebought it. And I feel like for the two versions we've bought, we've paid for them and then some. Oh, yeah. And we play with friends a lot like when friends come over Mm -hmm. we go there we play a lot of mario kart but it's not just mario kart right like do you want to swap stories or do you want to kind of tell them at the same time our history with mario um well why why don't you why don't you go ahead yeah so like i wouldn't necessarily identify as like someone who's really into video games Mm -hmm. but my dad really liked new technology growing up. And so he had an original Nintendo mm-hmm. and he, he mostly kept it at his business, which like we were sometimes there in the back room, but he would like bring it home occasionally too. And then the super Nintendo, he also bought for himself, mm-hmm. but that one kind of ended up getting stuck at home because we liked it so much. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Could you, was there two player for like two controllers for the Nintendo? Yep. Okay. I think he just didn't bring that one home as much. The Super Nintendo is the one I really remember. And I really remember Super Mario World. And I really remember Legend of Zelda. Mm -hmm. So playing those two a lot. And the way Super Mario World was set up, unlike Legend of Zelda, was you could take turns, right? Yeah. So like I could play. I have three siblings. I have two older sisters and a younger brother. My brother was a little young at that point. So it was usually me and my, my middle sister. My older sister was like too old, didn't care. Um, and her and I would usually just take turns playing and I have played Super Mario World so many times. Mm-hmm. Then, unlike you, 
not to sound bitter, we didn't get every gaming system ever created, but our parents did get us an N64. And I think they were into getting us an N64 because you could have four players on it. Mm -hmm. There would be no fighting, Mm -hmm. right? Like all of us could play together. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) at the time we got it, the TV was like up high, Mm -hmm. which is quite the dance. And then like the couches were like across the room. Yeah. Quite the dance when you've got to plug the N64 into the TV and then you've got to have the controllers attached to the N64. But we played so much N64. Now, N64, we played a lot more Donkey Kong. Yeah. In fact, the N64 we got was the Donkey Kong version. So sick. So it came with Donkey Kong 64 and it was like the translucent green. And then it had a translucent green controller, which we all fought over. So no, we didn't fight over playing, but we did fight over who got which controller. I always thought that was sick. And I also loved the, did you ever see the N64 controller that had that each of the like sticks were bananas? No, that's I'll, so cool. I'll, I'll 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 show you a picture after, but I thought that was so sick. Um, so yeah, we played a lot of uh, Donkey Kong sixty four, and in that one, even though you're only playing one at a time, what we did is we each were a character. It's mm-hmm. like you mastered your character, uh, and of course, my oldest sister wasn't particularly interested. She would kind of occasionally come in and help with Chunky, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, my second oldest sister got to be Donkey and Diddy. What a brat. Um, and then my brother was lanky and I was tiny and we would play that. We played a lot of Diddy Kong racing. We played a lot of Mario tennis. We played Mario Kart. We played Mario party all the time, just all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. You tell your story and then we'll start to link up with our joint story. Yeah. Like, I mean, growing up, I had started with the original NES, um, and played the Mario game to death, played duck hunt to death. Oh yeah. A lot uh, of duck hunt. Um, and it, like that's so cool that you can play like the shooting arcade game in your house. It's blowing your mind. Um, and we didn't. We eventually owned a Super Nintendo, but I remember for the longest time we didn't have one, and we would rent one from the video store. Whoa! Um, which was so cool, and it's so funny because the vivid memories I have and like the nostalgia is wrapped up in Super Mario World as well. Like. As soon as that music kicks up from Super Mario World and just the vibe of it and seeing Yoshi, it just, oh my God, it shoots me back to being in my living room in the summertime playing Super Mario When World. I hear the castle music, I get so stressed out. They're like, it's so stressful. And also the noise it makes when you finally like get to the castle door and you go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it like? I can't. I can't. It's kind of like a... <laughs> <laughs> But I love in that game too when it has like the checkpoint at the end of the level that's going up and down. It's like Yeah, that and and I have spent so much time in that spot where you could just generate a Yoshi. Yes. And then just like hopping around eating is it apples? I don't even know. Um and the other memory I ha- I have is my mom. My mom really loves like fucking digital slot machine games, <laughs> and we always had them for our computers and like card games and stuff. We had a Caesar's Palace game <laughs> where like you control in the nineties, yeah, <laughs> and you control this like guy that was in a white dress shirt and like black pants, and you walk around the game floor of Caesar's Palace up to whichever game you want to play. And you could play like craps, blackjack, roulette, wow. slot machines, poker, whatever. And like, I just remember all of us 
sitting there swapping controllers like playing the slot games or the card games and like while that's just kind of stupid <laughs> it was i thought it was so cool when i was young that we were all my family was together playing video games together and i feel like now if you did that whoever wasn't playing would be on their phone yes but at the time like when my siblings and i are swapping off playing dk64 the people who aren't playing are kind of playing point, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, oh, I think you need to go there or, oh, remember this thing that we had? Like they're kind of keeping track of the story or the quest um, mm-hmm. or being like, oh, watch out. Oh, go there. Oh, try this. And we're like still playing together. Yeah. Even only one person has the controller. Yeah. No, totally. Which you and I do together. Yeah. You had a GameCube. I didn't. Oh. Um, the other thing oh. with Super Nintendo is we had Mortal Kombat 3 and my mom would play that with me. And I thought that was really special. And I love that like she would just be laughing the whole time. My mom never played video games with us <laughs> and not once. She would watch. Mm, no, <laughs> I was going to say she would watch us sometimes when we play Dance Dance Revolution. But um, my dad would play with us, though. That's nice. Yeah. It's, it's Legend it's of Zelda. He, I mostly watched him, but every once in a while he'd let me help. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and then, yeah, I got an N64 for my birthday. The color, just the regular. Boring. Yeah, we um, still have it. Yes, we do. And like, yeah, classics: GoldenEye, Super Mario sixty four. We didn't have that. Oh, really? I've never played it. No. And then, yeah, like the N sixty four lasted for so long, and yeah, it was, it was the beginning of, like, all of my fondest memories of sleepovers with friends were bringing over your controllers. Yep. And. Playing Mario Party, playing, mostly Mario Party, playing yeah. GoldenEye, playing Mario Tennis, like all of that kind of stuff, or working on a single player game together. But again, yeah, it's this thing where we're all engaged, like we're swapping the controller and going on this adventure together. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have a GameCube, and then, and then, yeah, this is where I think this is where you, our story begins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um so i'll kick it back to you for <laughs> the beginning of our story um i don't i think we'd recently started dating we were 19 we were both still living at home but we were working retail jobs we weren't in post-secondary so we had a lot of free time and free like spare money that we were not smart enough to save um and one day we were out for brunch with my brother who would have been i think 15 at the time and his best friend also 15 and we were just like, let's go get a Wii. And we were like the cool older siblings who were like, yeah, we'll go buy a Wii right now. <laughs> and so I think we went to Blockbuster where you worked because mm-hmm. we got a discount, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and we bought a red Wii. I don't know if that was the only color. No, well, white is like the main one. Oh, so one. we got a cool one. I love a cool color system. And you it, know this about me. <laughs> yeah. But it it came with the new Super Mario Brothers game yes. as well. Yeah. So like like my N sixty four coming with Donkey Kong sixty four. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got that. We got four controllers. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And we started playing Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Um, with my brother and his uh really good friend Alex, and we bonded so much over that game. You and I, and then like the four of us. Mm-hmm. We spent, I think it must have been in the summer. Mm, probably. Because uh, we just would spend days 
just in the couch in my mom's basement playing the Wii. And I think you and my brother were Mario and Luigi, I'm assuming. Yeah, I I would. Yeah, I'd usually be Mario. Jared would be Luigi. And then me and Alex would be the Toads. Yes. <laughs> just like frantic calling of like, bubble, bubble. Because if you hit the bubble button before you fall off the screen, then you can save a life. You can get saved. Yeah. But somebody has to hit you to pop you out of the. But bubble. you can also get in each other's way, which is so annoying. So just like so much joyous, frantic, chaotic yelling, and it was so fun. It was so fun, mm-hmm. and that kind of started a tradition that pretty much has stayed for the last thirteen years of you and I, often in the winter, kind of choosing a co-op game to play together. Yeah, I have so many memories of being in your mom's basement playing a Wii game, like playing that. One of our favorite games is Donkey Kong Country Returns. Oh, I love it so much. We played that. I remember I have so many memories of us making teas from David's tea, going down to the basement late at night and playing Donkey Kong Country Returns. And trying so hard to win the K levels that don't have a save point yeah. and then eventually giving up and then trying it again first thing the next morning and getting it on the first try. Yeah, <laughs> it's always the case. And then, yeah, and then also like bringing out the N64 and playing Donkey Kong, re- yeah. replaying Donkey Kong 64. And we wrapped it for the first time ever for either of us. And yeah, I got like the 102% ending or whatever. Yeah, so um, good. And then we replayed Super Mario World from Super Nintendo together. And like that was a journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it was getting that Wii. I like the way you put that. Like I do feel. I don't think I ever really thought of it as bonding us, you and I, and bonding us with your brother, but it di- it totally did. Mm-hmm. It it was it was really important and it has continued to be important. And I think video games can be such a connective thing because even more so than movies, like you're in you're you're actively doing something together, right? Mm-hmm. And. I have so many really strong memories across my life of bonding with family and with you, particularly. Mm-hmm. I didn't play a lot of games with friends through gaming. Mm-hmm. Like I'm also thinking PC games, like me and my siblings would <laughs> take four chairs and make them like a car, so two in front and two in the back, and then put a bed sheet over top of us and the computer mm-hmm. and like play games and like pretend we were in a spaceship yeah, yeah. Um, or a car. And it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Yes. Yeah. Me and my brother played a lot of um, this really dumb. It was just a fighting game, but it was Watchmen themed. So we were Night Owl and Rorschach. And like when you'd be waiting for something to load, you could just like just kick around as you were waiting for the thing to to happen. The next part to open up to you. And we'd call it, I think it was ninja fight dancing or something <laughs> we'd be like time to ninja fight dance like just silly ridiculous stuff like that that you just remember for always because you're just doing this thing together and yeah it's it's really special and i don't i it's it seems so impossible that i didn't recognize that until i watched super mario brothers movie yeah it's so nuts what this movie was able to kind of make me re- reflective on because. It's so funny because I feel like playing Mario games now, if I go to play one by myself, I'm just like, this isn't the same as like, I want to play it with you. And 
playing those kinds of games is so tied up in us doing that together. And like if a new Mario game comes out, like we're going to be playing it. We're, we're desperately waiting for a new Donkey Kong game. Um, but you're right. Like there's just so much nostalgia and there's so much, there's so much fun and so much friendship and relationship building tied up in video games, specifically in the Nintendo world in our pasts. And and everybody has their like favorite characters, right? Like, like I love I love hearing that from people. Like, who was your character? Because you you kind of think your character. Of course, everybody loves that character. Mm-hmm. Then you'll hear that like that's not the case. Like I'm I'm a I'm a big Diddy Kong fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a big I mean who isn't? But a big Yoshi fan. Mm-hmm. Love Dry Bones. I love Shy Guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you like Wario because you're a freak. I like Wario. I like Donkey Kong. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yoshi's great. It's just, it. yeah, it's so fun. And so we're sitting in this movie and I'm annoyed that we're close to the screen and don't even know if it's going to be good. And then it starts. And I just watched that whole thing with a huge ass smile on my face. Yeah. It's so, I mean, first of all, it's gorgeous. It, it looks amazing. Um, It's, it's so incredible. It's so incredible any qualms that I had about voice acting for the most part, like 99%, I lost the voice actors and all the characters and it was just watching those characters on screen. I think Jack Black is the most recognizable as Jack Black, but he's pretty great in it. So yeah, you know, um, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's seeing all of the nods and the Easter eggs, um, appropriate because we watched this on Easter. Um, <laughs> But seeing all of those things just made the experience really magical and elevated this movie into a place I didn't think it was going to be able to go. And then, you know, you we have our nephew. He's just turned eight. And we put him in between us. He was in the middle. And he actually doesn't, he doesn't have this history with Mario that we have. He's an emerging Mario fan. And he mostly knows Mario from Mario Kart. And yep. Mario's his favorite character. Um, so like when there's Mario Kart references, he's just so happy and he's like turning to me and he goes, that's how I make a cart, you know, <laughs> or like just so excited. And the way he felt, I felt mm-hmm. where I like, I wanted to turn to you, but you were so far away from me. I'd be like, blue shell. <laughs> yes. Or like the music, like, you know, nudge you just because the music is something or, you know. There's some Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong 64 references that are friggin' amazing. And I just loved that. And so, yeah, the critiques of it's pretty basic and in terms of storyline. Yeah, they're not wrong, but do I want it to be something more than that? Yeah, I don't know if like they want like the people that that's give it that critique if they're wanting more of like a Pixar level storytelling kind of thing, but like that's not really true to the story of Mario. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like even though there are some things that are changed and fleshed out for the story from what happens in the, in the story and in the games and Mario games, it's still at its core kind of boiled down to the very simplistic storytelling that exists within those games. And I feel like it works really well here. And 
I don't know. It worked for me. Yeah, I didn't need it to be anything more. And I will watch more of these. There's characters that didn't appear or that had very little screen time. There's a particular character that like you just get a glimpse into and it's like, ah! and then it's gone. <laughs> yeah. You're like, no, more. Um, and I know lots of people have like favorite characters that weren't in this one. I'll watch more of them. And I could see how if you're not a Mario fan, which I didn't realize I was as much as I am until I watched this movie, that it wouldn't do much for you. Yeah. Like but- if this was a, a game that I don't really play. Final Minecraft? Fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Minecraft is a good one. Yeah, like a, even Lego. Like the Lego movie didn't do this for me. I don't really play a lot of Lego. I never did. That was my brother's thing or... You know, just a, a beautiful, interesting or not, all of the like in world stuff would have been lost on me. This was like watching all of this, this world and these characters that I've been playing for so long, like alive in front of me was really cool. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, we asked our nephew what he thought out of 10. And he's like, out of 10, Googleplex. Which he let us know, and if you need to know as well, that's 100 zeros. <laughs> yes. So he really liked it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we both want to see it again in the theater before it's before it's out. Um, and just see it, the two of us, so we could just start giving each other those nudges. Yeah, help each other. Um, I also love that this is the longest review you've ever written on Letterboxd. <laughs> it's really long. But I also feel like this is the longest we've kind of talked about a movie or that the, a movie has prompted us to talk more about our past and things from our past and how integral it was to our relationship and is, st- and is still such a big part of our relationship. Oh my goodness, this is a Super Mario Brothers movie, like our movie, like our song, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Maybe. Instead of having a wedding, we'll just rent out a theater and invite people to watch the Super <laughs> yeah. Mario Brothers movie. Yes. Yeah. Super special. Kind of surprised by it. How did it make you feel? Reflective and grateful for the role that the Mario world has played in my life. How did it make you feel? It made me just feel like so ridiculously nostalgically happy. Yeah. Really sweet. Really great. Really Highly great. recommend if you like Mario. Yeah. Okay. We are... Leaving the world of animation. And we are going somewhere a lot more intense. So there's this movie that I've literally been wanting to watch since I was a teenager. And it's kind of hard to find. Mm. Um, and one of my mentors at work has brought it, brought this movie up a couple times, bringing it back to my radar. Back on my radar. <laughs> Whatever the right version back of that is. Back on my radar. <laughs> you were <laughs> so musical today. Um, so I got it from the library, super excited to watch it. We didn't have a lot of mystery picks in the last couple of weeks. So I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to pick this and pop in the DVD. It's a French movie. Turns out the DVD is just French. No a, English subtitles. I'm having a lot of issues with this lately. I think it happens a little bit more here than it might other places because there are francophone communities in Canada, right? So yeah. I think those DVDs do sell like exclusively French ones. Right. Um, so then I was just like, I really want to watch this. So we rented it. It is available on iTunes. So it is the movie Caché. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hidden uh, in English. Prefer 
cachet. I agree. Uh, it came out in 2005. It is a drama mystery thriller directed and written by Michael Haneke. It stars Daniel Otoy as Georges George Laurent and Juliette Binoche as Anne Laurent. The synopsis is a married couple is terrorized by a series of surveillance videotapes left on their front porch. Just made me think our niece would really love this. Yes. I <laughs> was thinking that a lot. I'm like, well, she's older. If she's still into security cameras, this yeah. is, this is not a movie for her right now at four years old, but oh boy, will it be if she's still into them when she's older. All right. What did you think of Cache? Um, I too have been wanting to watch this for a long time. I remember looking at it multiple times when I worked at Blockbuster and I think I even took it out once and didn't watch it. And I was excited for this because Michael Haneke, I knew I was in for an uncomfortable ride. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I've come to expect. It's the same with like a Yorgos Lanthimos kind of vibe. They're similar, but they are a little different. Yes, there are. There, are, I feel like Yorgos pushes it. I don't. I don't even know. It, yeah, it's just different. I can't. I can't even. I think Yorgos Lanthimos films make me feel like really icky and gross. And Michael Haneke's films make me feel like oh, they both make me feel icky and gross, but in different ways. Like yeah. Yorgos Lanthimos is like um, pushing the boundaries of taboos. And I feel like Michael Haneke is pushing the boundaries of morality. That's really good. Yeah, I like that. On his Wikipedia page, um, I guess he's often been described. His films are described as having an aesthetic of dread or an ambient dread. Aesthetic of dread is a great metal band name. But I agree. Ambient dread makes sense to me, too, because I don't think Yorgos Lanthimos films have a feeling of dread in them, or at least not an ambient dread. That ambient is kind of like it's lurking in the background and you can feel it, but you can't place it. Yeah, I feel because I feel like there's dread specifically in Killing of a Sacred Deer. But Killing of a Sacred Deer, I just feel sick from beginning to end of that movie. Yes. And I feel like Haneke doesn't make you feel sick from start to finish he picks his moments to like punch you with that and i feel like in this film in cachet that that word ambient is very yes prevalent like i just felt i felt so much tension and like simmering dread from beginning to end in this movie yeah i i described it when i was writing my notes i described it as lingering unease yeah yeah, we were just like, it feels like something is going to happen. And I don't know what it is and I don't know why it's going to happen. And I just, I just don't like it. I just don't like it. I hate this feeling. Yes. It, it's a, and it's a feeling that just takes over your whole body. Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of, for me, it sits in my gut and then spreads to my chest. And then I'm just, I feel my body crumpling like a piece of paper. <laughs> and like Blankets up to my, up to my nose. And I'm just like, what? is going to happen. Where is this going? When's the other shoe going to drop? Um but in this film dealing with this idea of surveillance and being watched, Henneke does a, such a good job of making you feel like you're the perpetrator just by mm-hmm. watching. Um and you get the the dual viewpoints. You see it from the viewpoint of our protagonists. But you he also puts you in the shoes of the like i said yeah the perpetrators on the other side of things and that adds to that unease or that feeling of ick i think that's something he's doing i i we definitely will cover funny games at some point but that's something he's doing in funny games too right this like implication of the viewer um 
through these techniques in funny games, it's a lot of breaking the fourth wall. In this, it's more the placement of the camera. So yes. it's done in very different ways to implicate the viewer into the question of what does it mean to be the viewer of a film mm -hmm. and what types of films do you choose to watch and what responsibility do you have for the narratives that you take in? Yeah. And I think that's friggin' brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like just, I, and this movie got a like genuine gasp out of me. I'm usually not a very uh, audible audience member. Like I don't laugh particularly hard. I don't, you know, so if you get a really good laugh out of me, I do cry a lot, but like loudly, nah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like a hand clasped to my mouth, huge gasp. I think it's the biggest, yeah, it's the biggest gasp I've ever heard from you when watching something. <laughs> and I didn't want to comment on it when it happened because it was warranted, but I was like, damn, she okay. <laughs> Did you feel that way too, though? Oh, yeah. I, I think my go-to is... I don't gasp, but I'll like grab my forehead. <laughs> yeah, you do do that. And just your like, eyes go wide and like mouth agape. Yeah. <laughs> just, whoa, whoa. That happened to me too when we were watching our rad wreck this week. So, yeah. Lots, yeah lots of moments like that. Uh, yeah, but this is just another film for me where the tension just ratchets up and you just feel yourself getting tighter and tighter and. It was it was very affecting and it was clever in the way that it it challenges the viewer's patience mm -hmm. and their engagement throughout. And it has no non diegetic sound. You're right. It doesn't. That too. Like that just adds. It does to something. The, and then it's it's when you take out a component of a medium. The challenge is now how do you create the feelings you want without that? Mm -hmm. When you don't have a score, how do you create the feeling you want for the viewer without using music as a cue? Mm -hmm. I think you did it. Does this take place in Paris? It's definitely in France. I will say the traffic slash parking situation in France that's exhibited in this movie just stresses me right out but i wonder how per on purpose that is too like it feels like there's meant to be this consistent feeling of like suffocation stress dread tension you know did you see what street they live on i did but i can't remember rue which means street yeah i know some of us didn't take grade six french <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> rue de iris uh, street Eye. Well, yeah. <laughs> old Street, street Eye. eye. <laughs> um, that sounds like a, like a <laughs> it sounds like a like an action detective movie. Street Eye. <laughs> Keep your eyes open. On the street. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I like mine better. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, this summer, keep your eyes on, on the, the street. street. <laughs> well, now Street we, Eye. We, we need to be careful about giving our good ideas out because <laughs> Street Eye copyright bad dad. Bad dad. Yeah, because stole our continental show idea yeah so we talked last week about how cool it'd be if they made a, a continental show copyrighted it ourselves and then like two days later two days before we released the episode peacock presents the continental the continental so like clearly our room is bugged yeah. because it was before the episode dropped and um 
they like rushed to get that out there before our episode. I tell you. So if you're listening. And you see fucking street eye. That's ours. Yeah. <laughs> give, give, Cease and desist. Reach out. Baddad.raddad on Instagram. Anyway. Uh, no. The cool thing about Rude Iris. Tell me if you know this. Is you went to school for photography. Part of a camera is an iris. That's it. But also part of the human eye. It's an iris. Stop. It's cool. <laughs> no, no, no. It is. <laughs> okay. Here's something cooler then. Okay. So their names in the movie, the two main characters, are Georges and Anne Laurent. Those are the names of the characters in uh, Michael Haneke's movie, Code Unknown, and it's the name of the characters in Funny Games. Same exact name. What's the purpose? So, according to a writer named Lawrence, oh, damn. <laughs> he says this is done to, quote, downplay individualization and allow audiences to see the characters as, quote, multiple versions of a particular type. So they're all the same person and yet not the same person. Interesting. Michael Haneke says he just chooses simple names so no one can search for a metaphorical meaning. <laughs> you ain't telling me Finch means something, you know? <laughs> yes. But Michael Haneke, I like that sometimes I get a little annoyed with directors who are like, mm, figure out what it means on your own. Michael Haneke's like, no, I'll tell you what my movie means. So without spoiling anything, I've taken I've taken out some things that would, would spoil. He says that this movie, he says that people who are searching for an answer to the mystery in this movie are misunderstanding his film. And then he says, quote, the real question the film raises, how do we treat our conscience and our guilt and reconcile ourselves to living with our actions? He says, quote, I chose to use the genre, the structure of a thriller to address issues of blame and conscience, but my film isn't a thriller. Mm-hmm. And I think he knows full well that by doing that, there's going to be people who went in because they got excited about like the synopsis and, and the idea of it being a thriller and then and then get angry when it doesn't end up being that much like funny games does with horror. Yeah. Um, and he might also have people who critique it on the other side, right? Being like, I wanted more abstraction, less genre. Right. The more I sat with this movie, the more I read about it, the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. Yeah, I got a bit of that too. One thing I wanted to comment on from the quote from Michael Haneke, and I've been burned on this so many times with quotes similar to that from other directors, is like, if you're asking this question by the end of the of the movie, you didn't get it. And I feel like every time that we've found a quote like that from a director, it's been at a movie where the movie ended and I'm like, so was it like I asked the question that they said, <laughs> if you asked it, you're a dummy. Did you do that this time? <laughs> yeah, I did. So like, what do you think that this meant? Oh, you did. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just a big fat dummy. I, I, I'll own it. <laughs> You're, you are not. <laughs> I guess that is kind of mean when he says you misunderstood the film, but I don't. But I feel like it's important to ask the low hanging fruit question <laughs> to get to the higher hanging fruit questions. <laughs> I know this time you asked the question and then I had not read this quote, but I basically said what he said, didn't I? Yeah. I said like, well, I don't think it's about that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> you big stupid <laughs> I go to the high hanging fruit right away which is ironic because I'm not tall yeah, I am tall so I just grab what I can reach <laughs> <laughs> I gotta jump for it so I gotta work a little bit harder oh man man we should do a study and see if shorter people are smarter at abstract film 
But this I, was, I, feel I will like, say. I feel like they are because it takes longer for the blood to get to our brains. <laughs> right. You also claim that you get tired faster and I can't get mad at you because taller bodies need to sleep more. Yeah, because we're so big. It, it's like I use the comparison of when Ant-Man turns into giant man and then he gets really tired. It's because he's so big. Well, sure. <laughs> this is a movie I'd love to study in university. This is a movie I'd love to teach, but I couldn't. There's a couple of things that couple of things that happen in it that I think would be. Unless a student had particularly had signed up. Like what I love about university classes is like you're taking film study. Um, like it could be like film study colon transgressive sex, you know, like so you know what you're signing up for. Yeah. Or like English literature, queer cultures, like like you know to a degree the kinds of texts you're going to get into. Yeah. I have a student who I, I believe right now is taking a class on like portrayals of Nazism in film. Hmm. Um, which I think is like like starting with like Nazi propaganda films and then like making its way to like Jojo Rabbit and looking at like that history and like depending on who's making it. And I but that's not something that I think you should just plop down to a class that hasn't agreed to do it. Yeah. You know, so I think there's just some things in this film, even though I think it is so brilliant and I think the craft of it and how the craft is being used to create first an experience for the viewer while they're watching it. And I think Haneke does that so, so well. But then secondly, to explore these questions that are so much bigger than the film. Yeah. Is such a studyable thing. Like I would love to write a paper on Foucault and the panopticon and surveillance discipline and punishment <laughs> in cachet. I'm sure many people have already done it. It's pretty low hanging fruit in the, in academia, I would say to, to use Foucault to study this, I'm sure, but I want to do it anyway. That's my favorite kind of fruit. Foucault. Uh, low hanging. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Foucault fruit is my favorite kind of fruit. <laughs> I, uh, I just thought of the title of the first uh, street eye film. Okay. What is it? Street eye colon eyes on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that so much. Street Eye, Eyes on the Street. <laughs> That's Street Eye 2, Down a Dark Alley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, Street Eye 2, Blinded by the Streetlight. <laughs> I love that this was such a, like, abstract, arty, academic film, and you're talking about Street Eye. <laughs> the best thing to come out of it is Street Eye. <laughs> we make it. We become so famous for Street Eye. Um, I feel like Street Eye would be in the vein of, like, that, like, smoking causes coughing or, like, Treevenge, like a Jason Eisner film, or, like, you know, like, it's purposefully, like, like it, it, purposefully bad. Yeah. Like a MacGruber. And then when people are like, where'd you get the idea for Street Eye? You say Michael Haneke's film cachet. But I think Rude Iris. the thing is, I think that you treat it like the the way that Love Witch homage is like 60s cinema and you do it really well. But you make it like this really pulpy gumshoe detective -y kind of thing and like treat it uh, aesthetically like that. But it is so fucking stupid. But here's the problem. I am not interested in watching all those like hard boiled detective noir things in order to do that well, because I don't like those. I think they're boring. I need to do. I maybe street. Eye needs to go a different way. Maybe we just sell someone the idea for street. Eye. if you are listening and you would like to buy street eye off us yeah. and have us as like producers, but yeah. like you, you are the main vision. Yeah. We'll happily executive. We'll be EPs on, um, I think EPs put money in. No, EPs put money into it. 
EPs. If you know the difference between an executive producer and a producer, please message us. Maybe, at Pat you know, maybe it's not a movie series. Maybe it's a TV series. Um. A la The Continental. Since we've been really pooched out of the money we deserve for that. And it's just like really. I'd a, like it to be clear that we're being sarcastic when we say that we know that we didn't come up with the idea. But the fact that we talked about it and then it happened in the same week. Is I think does something. indeed show that we have brilliant ideas and someone should be paying us for them. <laughs> yes. At any rate, what did you think of Cachet? How did it make you feel? It made me feel. <laughs> I asked you more <laughs> questions. Stop, stop. Hold, hold the phone. <laughs> How did Cache make you feel? It made me feel uneasy in my own skin, but excited for street eye eyes on the street. No, I'm not putting that. <laughs> <laughs> How did it make you feel? It. I just felt the tension of a string tightening and tightening and tightening and tightening the whole movie. Yeah, same. Okay, it's 420. Promised you a stoner movie. So we watched one that neither of us have ever seen before. 1993's comedy, Dazed and Confused. Whoa, man. Oh, dude. Um, it was written and directed by Richard Linklater. It stars Jason London as Randall Pink Floyd. Wiley, great name. Wiley Wiggins as Mitch. Matthew McConaughey as David. All right, all right, all right. Wooderson. Uh, Rory Cochran is Ron, Joey Lauren Adams is Simone, and Mila, Mila Jovovich, Jovovich as Michelle, and Ben Affleck as O'Banion. Uh, synopsis, the adventures of high school and junior high students on the last day of school in May 1976. School got out in May in 1976? <laughs> I wish. It feels incorrect. Um, yeah, it's 420. We had to watch at least one stoner movie. What, an what a great opportunity to finally watch Jason Confused. What do you think of it? I was very excited to watch this because I have liked a lot of Richard Linklater films. I knew you really wanted to watch a 420 movie. <laughs> I, I thought it was a good choice. I do get this confused with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which we have seen. Yes. So there was this big... um. I think it was over the pandemic, like a read through of the script of Fast Times with the original cast. Mm -hmm. And that had Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt in it. And it was like all over the internet. So then I was like, is Jennifer Aniston in this movie? But she's in Fast Times. Um, I don't know about that. Well, she did a read through of the script. Are you sure? Uh, I mean, she's definitely allowed to do the read through of the script. You don't think she's in it? I don't think she's in it. Well... But maybe she was standing in for somebody who didn't want to be a part of it or yeah. is no longer with us. I don't know. Yeah. And, and then Brad Pitt was like somebody else and they did like a flirty thing, I guess. And it was like everybody cared about it. So maybe she wasn't in it. Anyway, I was all confused. I was all confused about everything. Yeah. Um. So I uh, feel complicated. I think uh, it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, for me, this movie was just all right. All right, all right. Not all right, all right, all right. It was all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah, I felt the same way. And some people love this movie so much. And it's in the Criterion Collection. And see, the thing is, I can totally see loving this if I grew up with it. Like, yeah, like a Ferris Bueller. Like, yeah. I can see that. It'd be like, oh, taste and confused. I've got to watch that, man. I love it so much. Not the case. Um, yeah, watching it as a 
33 year old person. Yeah, I think. Oh man, hold on. 1993, 2003. This was like the 30 year anniversary of this movie. I guess so. I don't know why I have to do that math. It came out in 1993. I was born in 1990. I could have done that really, <laughs> really quick. Wait, 10, 20, um, 4, 20. So that's kind of cool. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You have ADHD. Um, I hate hazing stuff. Yeah. And here it's meant to be like funny. And I don't think it's funny. And I think so. Here's part of the problem. I think school culture in the States is very different than school culture in Canada That's fair. because of the like nine to 12 thing, the whole like freshman, freshman sophomore, sophomore, junior, senior shit. Like we don't have that here. No one's like, Oh, the grade 12s need to paddle the grade 10s. Oh, like, gotta give just, the freshman a swirly. Yeah. Like it's just, <laughs> I'm like, I don't think as someone who teaches in a high school, I don't think my grade 12s, could give a rat's ass about showing up to the grade nine junior high on the last day of school to like bully them and have it like wreck my day if I couldn't get them. Yeah. Like they don't care. They're like, yay, I'm done. Like the last, <laughs> like at the end of the day on the last day of school, everyone goes if to I'm, Smitty's. If I'm in high school, I could not be fucked to go to the junior high and wait to and like spray people with ketchup and yell at them and beat them up and try and get them drunk and stuff. But it's the same with like university shit too that we see with like. With like frats and. Sororities and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, so like the culture in the States, I think is just, just really different, at least how it's portrayed in film. And even with like prom and nobody cares that much about stuff like that here that I've, that I've met at least not, not our high school experience. No. When I was in grade 12, I didn't care about the grade tens. They, I, I no. didn't, they didn't bother me and neither did I like them. Like it was just. Yeah. I went to an, I went to a seven to 12 school from grade seven till 10. Um, but you just, you ignore everything. That's everyone that's beneath you pretty much. Yeah. Like, and they don't interact you don't with you. You don't to make paddles to beat them with. No. And then the other thing about this that's pretty uncomfortable is like the romance, sexual stuff. The age gaps are pretty big. Like a kid who just got out of grade eight and it and somebody who just finished grade eleven. Like that that age gap feels a little big to me. It is and yeah. And I mean the the iconic Matthew McConaughey line of like I I get older, they say the same age has not aged well. No, it's gross. I mean, granted they do call him out for that within the film. And then, like, the one woman who is, like, interested or girl who's interested in being with him seems to very much be consenting to that and be aware of who he is and what he's like. Yeah. It's still a really, like, icky line. Yeah. But I will say, though, the Matthew McConaughey of it all, I love that he is not a main character and he just kind of shows up, like, halfway through the movie. I can tell you why. Why? Um, so, originally the character of Kevin was supposed to be a lot more prominent. Mm. Um, but the actor who played Kevin and the actor who played pink hated each other and like had physical fights on set where they had to like break them up. And so Richard Linklater is like, I have to go in a different direction. Cause I'm like, I can't have, they can't be in scenes together. And so like, he was just like, okay, Matthew McConaughey, I guess it's you. This is his first movie. Yeah. He like, 
I guess there was like a casting director at a bar. He's like, I'm just going to go talk to him. And then he got in this movie. So incredible. Um, but like I, I thought he was that that line aside and just like his whole air aside. Like I enjoyed knowing who Matthew McConaughey is now. I enjoyed seeing him on screen because he's just such a doof and just like, all right, man. <laughs> I think so. There are some things like I think craft wise, I really appreciate this movie. Yeah. Um, a couple things that I read uh, when it first came out, Roger Ebert called it art crossed with anthropology. The store. I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're really harsh in my vibe today, man. Oh, sorry, dude. <laughs> um, but like that idea of just like you're just observing people, mm-hmm. um, which I do think Richard Linklater does really well. And I'll talk about that more in a bit. Yeah. The other thing is, I guess, Linklater set out to make like an anti John Hughes movie or an inverse John Hughes movie. So I think like not having that like sweetness to it, mm. you know, um, I can appreciate that. Can you guess where most of the budget to this film went? Music. Yeah. A sixth of the budget. That that makes sense. I mean, if you've seen School of Rock, you know that Richard Linklater loves a needle drop moment. And, and he's not, not going to compromise. No, like he picks good music to be in his movies. And there are some, again, some of the music choices could be seen as low hanging fruit. But they work so well. Yeah, the music slapped. And I think like his the general... Like it's a nothing happens but the vibe movie, right? Yeah. Where we're like kind of following these different characters and we just like follow them and then connect up with somebody else and just kind of keep doing that. Nothing much really happens, mm-hmm. um, which I like. I like that a lot. Like that's one of my favorite types of movies. Then I also love stoner movies. Like you know this. Yeah. I love Mallrats. I love Bill and Ted. I don't know what Harold else. Harold and Kumar probably hasn't aged super Probably well, not, but I but, used to like it. Yeah. I loved the show My Name is Earl when I was in high school. Also probably hasn't aged well, but I'd say that's a stoner show. Mm. Um, at any rate, this was a bummer then that I didn't love it <laughs> because yeah. it's like a really well-loved movie. It's a really respected movie artistically, like cinematically. I love stoner movies. I like Richard Linklater movies. I like walk and talk. Nothing happens but the vibe movies. But I think what's going on in here is just like a little too mean spirited for me and icky in a not fun way. And I can totally draw the lines between how you get from Dazed and Confused to that 70s show. Totally. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that we've spoken before of revisiting that 70s show and <laughs> basically ducking out of it after the first episode, because I think that there's just something about 70s American culture that hasn't aged well. Mm-hmm. And when it's translated into film or television, specifically around the two examples of Days and Confused and that 70s show. As a celebration or a nostalgia, especially. It's, it is mean-spirited. Yeah. And it's like not something I think we need to bring back. Now, what I will say is... The vibe of this is akin to what uh, Linklater is doing in Waking Life, but from like a surrealist perspective or like a that kind of dreamscape and it's very philosophical or what he's doing in the before movies, which I think is also quite existential philosophical, but about like relationships and romance, whereas Waking Life is more about like just life in general. And I really like those 
way more than I like this. Yeah. Like I've seen Waking Life so many times and we've only watched the before trilogy once, but I, I really enjoyed it and I will revisit it. I don't really feel a need to ever revisit Dazed and Confused. I'm very glad that I've seen it. Yes. But I, I and I appreciate what's going on craft wise. And I definitely think Jason London is very cute. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about where it ends. Did you know, though, that the, the little one, Mitch, mm-hmm. he's the main one in Waking Life? I do not remember that movie at all. What? I would really. I made you watch it, didn't I? Yeah, but that was so long ago. I really want to revisit it because you've brought it up a few times on the show now. So I think we should yeah. watch it soon. It's probably like really pretentious, but I really love it. That's fine. Thanks. Thanks for the permission. No, no that's cool. I feel like Eternal Sunshine could be seen as pretentious, but we yeah. we talked about that. I also really think rotoscoping is cool. I do too. I'm such a sucker for that that kind of shit or like stop motion, like the stuff that everybody likes. Yeah, when we finally find the VCR, find a VCR to watch these like movies I made as a kid, I did a lot of the um, setting on the, you could put a setting on the camcorder where it like made you look like you were animated. I did a lot of that. (laughs) Nice. Not as fancy as rotoscoping, (laughs) but I thought it looked real cool at the time. I guess we will find out. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm with you. Glad to have seen it. Don't think I'll ever need to see it again. How to make you feel? It made me feel along for the ride cinematically, but not thematically. Yeah, that's well put. I I, I would echo that. You? Neither dazed nor confused. <laughs> Good one. Thank you. Thank you. Last I really macaroni. Wish you had just picked Bill and Ted. I thought you did at first, and then I and then I can, had it. I considered it. I was so torn. But it was the pull of we've never seen Dazed and Confused and it's like kind of regarded as a quintessential. Oh, wow. I'm yawning. I also want to make Ashley watch Bill and Ted with us because she's never seen it. Yeah, I think we had talked about that. So I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to watch it now. Yes. We're going to rewatch it with Ashley. I'd like to have a fresher experience. Fresher experience. (laughs) What are you quoting? The Green Mile. (laughs) Shocking Shocking experience. experience. Oh, my God. We've been quoting Green Miles so much lately. We played Mario Kart last night. And for eight races, we just quoted the Green Mile the entire time back and forth. We we almost went through the whole movie. (laughs) I'm saying our two-man show is going to happen. Okay. Last movie. Um, I picked a horror movie that's kind of been on my radar for a while. But I didn't know a lot about, to be honest. It's just kind of been on the radar. So I picked the movie Tigers Are Not Afraid. Um, it's a 2017 fantasy horror mystery directed and written by Isa Lopez. It stars Paolo Laura as Estrella, Juan Ramon Lopez as El Shine, Neri Arandondo as Moro, Hansel Casilla as Tucci, Rodrigo Cortez as Pop, Yanis Guerrero as Caco, and Tena Huerto as El Chino. Synopsis, a dark fairy tale about a gang of five children trying to survive the horrific violence of the cartel and the ghosts created every day by the drug war. It's a really nice synopsis. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Tigers Are Not Afraid? This is this was tricky for me because, yeah, I was also looking forward to this movie a while ago. I think it was playing at Metro and I was like, I, I think I really want to see that. And it kind of fell off my radar. And... The, the title is intriguing to me as well. 
but after we watched it, I just kind of landed in the zone of this was okay. Yeah. Um the the dark fairy tale aspect of of it was intriguing, but it just didn't work for me. Um and I I started drawing maybe unfair comparisons to the work of Guillermo del Toro, so like Pan's Labyrinth mm-hmm. and even Shape of Water where he starts weaving in a sort of fairy tale like element of mm-hmm. things into reality and i felt like his work has achieved it in a more effective and emotionally satisfying way than this did for me so i did re- i was reading some stuff about how so Guillermo del Toro and this film are working in the realm of magical realism right yeah um as a genre and magical re- realism is a particularly Latin American uh, tradition of storytelling. Um, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez is like kind of one of the biggest magical realist writers. Um, and of course, there's magical realism in other forms of writing too. Um, so they're both playing within that. And yet that's not really a genre that is listed it's not like oh this is a work of magical realism it's a fantasy horror mystery but magical realism means something different and to me this movie was more magical realism than it was horror yes so the fantasy slash horror is basically saying magical realism Mm -hmm. but magical realism has a very particular feeling to it right where it's grounded in a realistic setting and then has these elements of magic Mm -hmm. that we are to take as real I think Guillermo del Toro's films have brought the realism of the magic perhaps a little bit more finessed than this does. They just like this it does meshes feel, better. This does feel more fantasy yeah. than like, you know, Life of Pi is magical realism. The Green Mile is magical realism. Um, where the magic exists within the film and it is just a reality. Whereas there's a degree to which by the end of this film, I think those elements could be seen as um, more like a little princess. Yeah. Like that it was just in her mind. Yes. Or it's just symbolic or thematic, right? And it wasn't actually there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I felt, yeah, it was tricky because I think the central story of this movie is one that was, that kind of kept me captivated. Yeah. And I also think it's really important. And I think looking at this through the lens of magical realism with some tinges of horror is a really rife place to do that effectively. Yeah. But there was something about it that just didn't coalesce for me. Yeah. Like some, some highlights for me is like, I mean, it has some really creepy imagery. Yeah. When it goes creepy, it goes real creepy. Really creepy peepee. Like my most disturbed parts of Nightmare on Elm Street ramped to a 10. Yes. Yeah. And it has some very disturbing sequences that definitely are rooted in reality more so than the fairy tale aspect of things. And it has some like really profound dialogue in it mm-hmm. that again, it just, it's, it's really well written, really well delivered, but it just didn't. And maybe it was just like this particular day, or maybe it's the, the overall experience of the film. It just didn't hit me emotionally as hard as I feel like it could have. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't put my finger on what it is, but it is well written. It is well executed, save for a few 
TGI elements that didn't work as well for me. Yeah, me too. They got a little too like, like what I'm talking about with these Pixar movies that have these like hyper cutesy things. Like there's this, I compared this to uh, Grave of the Fireflies or um, I can't remember what the other thing I said was where there's a juxtaposition between the whimsy and innocence of childhood and then the bleakness and reality of what childhood can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually thought the film portrayed that best in like like moments of the kids playing soccer in an abandoned, falling apart mansion. Yeah. And drawing on the soccer balls as opposed to in these like CGI cartoons. Yeah. Like I thought that that was happening or like, like this beautiful imagery of fish in a pond and like not even a pond fish in a layer of water from where the roof has broken and a tank has broken that the fish were in and the fish have made a new home in this like gutter essentially Mm -hmm. that is symbolically and thematically saying more to me than a CGI stuffed animal. Yes. Um, And I felt a little bummed about that because like when it worked, it really, really worked. But those things pulled me out of it so much. I also like I don't like being hypercritical, but I thought the score was overdone. Yeah. Like yeah. comparing that to Cache, which has no score, this I was like, you're you are I felt like my the score was so overdone that instead of having me feel the emotions that I was supposed to feel, it made me very aware that I was watching a movie and pulled me out of feeling that way. Maybe that maybe that's part of part of it of like it didn't want to revel in its subtlety too much. Yeah. It wanted to be more boisterous. It wanted to have more obvious musical stings. It wanted to have these punctuation points with CGI. And it didn't want to just quiet down and focus on the more subtle moments that are more affecting and can get you more emotional and bring you into the world more. And when it had those, those worked really, really well for me. Me too. Yeah, because um, uh, I agree. Like, I don't want to just shit on this movie, but like, I, I'm I'm just disappointed. And yet, like, people really like this movie. And fairly so, I, I, th- I think. Like, Stephen King listed it as one of his favorite movies of the year, the year it came out. Uh, Guillermo del Toro as well. Mm-hmm. And that might be part of it. Like, it's been really hyped up. Right? Like, we've been told that, like, yeah. we've heard this is a really great movie. And then it's like, oh, that wasn't as good as I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe if we saw it at, like, a film festival knowing nothing about it. Maybe. Yeah. It would have been a different experience. Yeah. Also, the, the question of horror comes up, right? This is labeled a horror movie. Did it feel like one to you? Elements did. Mm-hmm. But I feel that way with, uh, like, Del Toro's stuff. Like, but is, it's not usually called horror, I don't think. Yeah, no. Like, I th- there whereas is... Whereas this is on Shudder. Pan's Labyrinth is not on Shutter. The Orphanage is, though, I think. Or The Orphanage is called a horror movie, I think. Yeah. The um, Orphanage is scarier. The person that did The Orphanage, they also do Monster Calls movie? Possibly. Not important, but like that it's still dealing with like that magical realism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't like go hard and fast that this is a horror movie. Um. I feel like there is that genre that just hasn't been named yet, that it is magical realism. I like that. I like how you put that because I think that that is very much a genre. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I think I was bummed that I didn't like this more and I don't want to not have. 
I don't want I, I yeah, I don't want to have to talk about the parts of it that I didn't like. Yeah. Um, but it is uh Issa Lopez, it's her first film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a first film that's pretty damn impressive. I agree. I you know, despite it not landing for me, I would still recommend watching this to people. I also think the um Spanish title is a lot better. What yeah, what is it? Is it like I was like there's no way that means tigers are not afraid because it's one word. So the direct translation is come back. Hmm. And I think thematically, like they say tigers are not afraid like 20 million times in the movie, so we get it already. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, that's I, I talk to my creative writing students about this a lot. So like you can just name your story something that's a direct line from your thing. So that would be like calling Macbeth Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Right? It'd be like calling the Super Mario Brothers movie, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Jurassic Park, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Or you can do something like Hereditary, mm-hmm. where in the end, the title is having you think about the theme. Yes. Right? Or something like um, Parasite. Mm-hmm. And I think Come Back, or uh, another translation of it could be Return. Mm-hmm gets you to think about the thematics of it yes. and then it's already got that motif of the tiger and that like that like almost like aesop's fable in there of like tigers are not afraid so you've already got that symbolism you've already got that motif then you can add like a different kind of thematic heft with that title come back so that's that makes things really interesting in terms of the conversation of what happens in a translation yeah because people watching it in mexico people watching it um, where Spanish is their first language and they don't have the subtitles on, um, they're seeing that title. Yeah. It Which I'm not saying would change the film at all. I just like that title better. But it could. Um, it, it could It could change the way you view it just from a thematic standpoint. This is true. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. Uh, I like that consideration. Because Tigers Are Not Afraid puts the emphasis on the children. Yes. Come back puts the emphasis on some of those like very scary moments that kind of shift from scary to sad. Yes. Um, and like an and and the opening, the film opens with some um text about like the reality of of this cartel violence. Um, and I think come back speaks to that more. Mm-hmm. And this idea of like the missing and the unaccounted for and the left behind. And the people who are left behind who aren't missing, like what are they experiencing emotionally and, and in reality? So I just, I like that title better. Yeah. Tigers are not afraid is still a cool title. Oh, it's super cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. It was one of the reasons I was, and I think come back is actually not that we've heard that title before. Yeah. But I think in reference, having watched the film, it's a thematically richer title. Yes. Um, Kyle Edward Ball, who made Skin Marink, has been talking about uh, that a little bit on Twitter lately about the um, the title translations in other countries for Skin Marink, and how he's not necessarily a big fan of all of them. Mm. But that's since Skin Marink is not a real word, it's been a difficult title to translate. Right. Some of them are called Mister Skin Marink. <laughs> oh, Monsieur <laughs> Skin Marink. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I just, there's things about this I really, really liked and things about this I really, really didn't like. And those two things kind of jarred to the point where I was like, I just feel okay about it. Yeah. You? Yeah. Did you, did you ask how I feel? 
No, but I can. How did Tigers Are Not Afraid make you feel? Yeah, it, it, it left me feeling disappointed and wanting a more fulfilling emotional experience after the film. But recommend checking it out for yourself. Like I said, if especially if like magical realism is your jam. But magical realism is my jam. Yeah, like I love Del Toro stuff. Monster Calls, not the film, but the book is one of my favorite books of all time. Harry Potter. But, you know, tread carefully. Um, okay. You, I didn't get to. Oh, so sorry. So sorry. Uh, how did it make you feel? It made me feel moments of really heavy sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Complicated movie. Yeah. But I like that. Okay. That's the Smackaroonies. Let's name the dads of the week. Who's your bad dad nominee? I have a feeling I know who you're going to pick. I don't know. But uh, I don't think we're I, I, I don't think we're going to be lined up. Yeah, I agree. Um, for the bad dad, I picked George Laurent from Cache. That's who I thought you were going to pick. Oh, and I think so it, predictable. But I think you're going to I think you're going to take this one. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I picked him because especially looking at the thematics of the film, which is looking at what feelings of guilt and shame about past actions. And the movie is looking at this from a the character of George, but I think to speak about cultural accountability. Yeah. Um, like there is a way to study this and think about truth and reconciliation in Canada um, through the thematics of this film. And George is like the figure of the nation, right? He lets his guilt impact the way that he engages with his family and in particular his son and his wife. Um, I mean, that's his whole family, but like as a father and a husband, he lets his shame about his past actions cause him to be worse rather than better, rather than attempt to grow. And in that, he reaches a point of like secrecy that is damaging emotionally to everyone involved, um, including the people involved in his past actions, right? And so everything he does is about running from his own bad feelings of guilt and shame rather than attempting to take accountability to grow from them, to make amends, to live a different kind of life and to be a different kind of person for his son. That is so eloquently put. Thank you. I That's pick, a real bad dad, though. Yeah. I picked Bowser. <laughs> 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 and might I say I thought you would <laughs> yeah, yeah I thought you were gonna pick that character so I was like what What the heck <laughs> I'll pick Bowser I mean <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie Bowser he's a tyrant he's dangerous very selfish toxically infatuated and that makes him very yucky um, he does not seek improvement on himself or he's not reflective on his actions and he's just a rude dude. I think you won this one. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, very quick. All right, then, Georges Laurent. Don't, don't be, be our, our dad. dad. No. <laughs> um, Red Dad of the Week. Uh, I pick Street Eye. <laughs> um, I pick Marlon from Finding Nemo. I didn't. Ah. Uh, um, the thing about Marlon is that he, 
I mean, a big part of his arc is that he, over the course of the journey, he learns from his faults and his mistakes. And he's willing to do anything for his family, including reflect on his decisions and the things that he's done. Um, and I think that the development that he goes through over the course of the film is such a great reference point for people to look at and see themselves in. Like I said, I, I could see myself in Marlon and, you know, shifting thinking and how you operate in the world and how you approach family and the ones you care about. And I think he's a good model for that. Uh, and I think it's so cool that he's a character that exists in a kid's movie as a model of that. Marlon. Yeah. That's all really well said. I picked princess peach. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that you <laughs> bowsered me on the rat dad. So she's a mentor to Mario. She's a mentor. Like a and and in a very like patient way where like she teaches and she's she's there to support. The teachers of peaches? She is the teachers of peaches. Ah, this <laughs> song is pretty sexual. Um she's a leader. Like she's a leader of her people and like her people respect and love her, which I think shows how she, she leads with kindness um, and with a deep love of the people she's leading rather than power for herself, which is kind of the opposite of Bowser. Makes sense why you picked Bowser. We've got foils in the two of them just to get our literature on there for a second. <laughs> um, she's kind, but she's also badass as fuck. Yeah. Like she will defend if she has to, She's open to learning new things and to reevaluating her past. Mm -hmm. um, and while she will do all of these things for other people, she does defend herself as well. She's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. Where do we go <laughs> from here? I feel I feel like a lot of the things you said to about Peach could apply to Marlon, like the fact that he's willing to put himself on the line for people that he cares about or in situations where you wouldn't have thought he would do that. But he's like reflective enough to be like, no, I like, this is where I need to so, take action. This is what I'll say. I didn't pick Marlon because I was thinking about for the majority of the film. I actually don't think he's that rad of a dad. I think he's letting his trauma get in the way of him being a good father. But I think you make a really good point that he, the film is about his journey to recognizing that and making amends for that. And to begin a journey of growth. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, when I, I go back to the first time we watched After Sun and I named Callum as our rad dad and you said, well, how? And I spoke about, well, you don't have to be perfect to be a rad dad. Um, I think that you defended Marlon very well, whereas Peach is just kind of awesome from the beginning. And I think there's something even more impressive about having weaknesses, having areas of trauma, having struggles and learning to grow and work through them. Yeah. So we we I'll give this to you. Thank you. I love a complicated rad dad. But I do think Peach would have been cool. Yeah. I think Bowser would have been cool too. So a bit of a bummer there, graphics wise. But you know, <laughs> that's what I was thinking but we're, too. But we're stuck. We're you know what? We're committed to truth here. Yeah. We're committed to the tough stuff. Graphics be damned. Yeah. Show us a little love by going and liking our very boring graphic of George Laurent <laughs> on Tuesday. Yes. Uh, okay, so Marlon, be Your our dad. dad. Hey, I hinted at it earlier. Rad wreck of the week. 
Well, why don't you introduce the Red Rack? I feel like I've been doing that lately. Why don't you hit us with the Red Rack? You've been watching a show. Finished it. Loved it. A24. Of course, they got us. Got us by the Nards. A24 got us by the Nards. It's true. They really do. They've got a vice grip on us. Um, And this... (laughs) (laughs) This was no exception. We watched the show Beef and it fucking rocks. Oh, man. It's so good. It slapped. Um, If you have Netflix or if you are conscientiously objecting to Netflix because of their commitment to continuing to work with transphobic creators totally understand try and steal netflix from somebody else um or find another way to watch it but it's very good um steven yen ali wong both beautiful people both really great actors i just yeah i really love the whole thing it is manic it is hilarious it is eventually very very sad and i think it's important Mm. um Highly recommend. And my God, the needle drops and the references to 90s and Another 2000s music. Big win for, for millennials, you know? Yeah, truly. Like it's, it is a time to be a millennial watching media. Yeah. Because we're making the media. Also, for us. the poster for this show is so good. I kind of want it the, with the middle fingers. Oh, I don't like it. I think it's dumb, but I like it. you can put it in your office. Okay. Uh, that's Red Rack. Beef on Netflix. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Um, if you want uh, to partner with us on making Street Eye happen, please let us know. Please let us know. Also get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. These names are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life. And drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. Well, that's going to do it for these street eyes this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.